Welcome to the Hello First Name Podcast. The Hello First Name Podcast revolves around the term personalization and is brought to you by marketing author Rasmus Holin, founder of Omnichannel Institute and chief experience officer at the marketing automation software company Agilic. The podcast is based on the book Hello First Name. Each episode is based in turn on a chapter from the book, followed by a discussion of the very same chapter with an expert marketing practitioner in the following episode. As always, you can buy the book on Amazon or other bookstores. You can also choose to listen to it all for free on your favorite podcast service. You're also very welcome to download the abstract of the book for free, and all models, of course, are able to download. All downloads are sponsored by Agilic. I'll make sure to put a link to everything in the show notes. But you can always connect on LinkedIn, and I'll be happy to reply and help out. Hello, and welcome to the Hello First Name podcast. This is the uh, second episode. First episode was the uh, recording and the audiobook reading of the, the first chapter of, book, of the book, namely uh, the hype of personalization. So as the idea is with this podcast, we'll be interchangeably um, reading the chapters aloud and subsequently we'll be having conversations with experts in the field around the topic that was in the chapter that just came out. So that's sort of the idea and uh, I'm really happy that you are listening in on this podcast. The, uh, the theme of today and the chapter of today from uh, Hello First Name is the one uh, about uh, the hype of personalization, about how consumers expect personalization or do they and brands had better deliver, what is the tech hype of personalization and how, how can it be that every year seems to be the year of personalization. Uh, and to discuss that with me uh, here in the, in the studio today, I have uh, invited uh, David Mannheim. Uh, welcome, David. Hi. And uh, David is... Uh, David is, is also uh, an author uh, about uh, of a book about personalization. So in fact, we we met each other um, through uh, through through common people in our network. And uh, first, I was uh, super afraid that um, that David would write a book that was that was uh, much better than mine, and he probably did. It's not out yet, so uh, the jury's still out. Um, I read it, and I, I think it's actually at least maybe more entertaining uh, than the one. Um, I've made, but uh, nonetheless, we decided to hook up and exchange views and also potentially uh, share uh, our networks. So that's what we're here to do today. And uh, David, maybe you can give a, dig- a brief introduction uh, about yourself and, and sort of your history and your your way into the realm of personalization. Uh, yeah, I guess so. Well, I, so I owned a, I founded a conversion rate optimization consultancy called User Conversion back in 2015, which seems like years and years and years ago. Uh, and that got successfully acquired by a great company called Brain Labs in 2021. So my my route into personalization was was probably already there, dependent on your definition of it. But I was very much focused on CRO, experimentation, A-B, A-B testing, user psychology, customer analytics, uh, that type of stuff. Uh, and it wasn't until, I don't know, some comings together of... Uh, commercial giants destroying my trust in brands and relationship marketing that I decided to explore this in a lot more detail and hence forth wrote the person in personalization which comes out on the 29th of August uh, you can pre-order it on the 22nd so yeah but yeah you can almost pre-order I think that is the Kindle book maybe already the Kindle book is available yeah um, yeah but I mean, this is hardback, you know. They're not like those paperbacks that you sometimes get. Hello, first name. Uh, so. <laughs> Clearly, a sign of quality there. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, perhaps I wanted to make it light and easy to put in the uh, in the uh, <laughs> in, in in your in your bag, and that was yeah. my idea. Oh, it's great! It's a great book. I enjoyed it. It's very it's very practical, you know. Whereas mine is slightly more, which is probably why you've asked me to talk about this. But it's slightly more conceptual. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I, I would definitely, I've definitely introduced some personality into it. Let's put it that way. It's, I, I yeah, would classify it as funny. Uh, but who well, knows? I revisited the uh, the manuscript uh, leading up to, um, to 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 the small recording here, and I was delighted to to get back into the uh, the fairy tale of personalization that you've put together, and the uh, just the way that your writing is uh, is very very entertaining and and uh, deep and good as well. So uh, so today's topic, uh, the hype of personalization. I would like to first uh, ask you what is. I mean, do you feel the hype? What is your view uh, of the hype? Um, just from from the top or from the uh, from the bottom of your heart, uh, actually, is there a hype about personalization? Well, yeah, that, just as like you said, every year seems to be the year of personalization. You could probably count it all the way back to like the Gutenberg Press or uh, Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People in 1936. 1936 could be the year of personalization. I, I think it was also the year of the the Spanish Civil War, I think that probably overshadowed it. Um, but it, it definitely feels as though uh, there's a demand from personalization from the customer. There's no question about that. There's too much sensory input. Uh, curation is an absolute need, and therefore people assume that personalization is the equivalent of curation, and that is why consumers need it, which totally makes sense. So you can see that in the explosion in the MarTech stack. Uh, you can see it in the explosion of adverts. I think we're exposed to, what's it, 14,000 adverts per day now. Uh, wow. So personalization is absolutely necessary from a consumer perspective. From a business perspective, because it's necessary from a consumer perspective, businesses assume that it is the next big thing. But they have been assuming that for a good, I would say, 2015 actually is when I classified right. the genuine year of personalization. It seemed like that's when the explosion really happened. Uh, which is Why also the that, year that what happened in 2015 that made it... There were quite a number of different things. Um, new companies were formed. Uh, I'd have to revisit my book for the specifics, but new companies <laughs> were formed. Um, the, you know the MarTech um, uh, graph of all the different uh, tech stacks? That's when personalization yeah. became an actual, um, an actual uh, category within <clears> there. There were a number of different things that just seemed to click more than anything. Uh, so there's something about that year uh, and ever since then, it feels as though companies have tried to reinvent the name of personalization, either for commercial gain or for self-interest yeah. or marketing awareness or whatever it might be. Uh, and because they're unable to achieve what this paradise of one-to-one -one personalization uh, should have been, um, uh, you know, through, through data uh, restrictions and accessibility and technology restrictions and accessibility and even strategic uh, um, restrictions and accessibility, uh, that nothing's ever been reached. And so it almost feels at the turn of every new year, people tend to think this is the year of personalization, finally. Mm. And until there's yeah. some kind of catalyst or seismic shift in, in the movement, then I don't think that's ever going to be realized, unfortunately. And those <laughs> yeah. are my views anyways. So I was so the thing about uh, you mentioned this thing about the term personalization constantly being sort of uh, modified or altered mm. or the perspectives changed a bit uh, made me think of the Gardner hype cycle. Yeah, 
and the, uh, the the life of personalization in the Gartner hype cycle, uh, where we have like different categories that then suddenly you have personification and personalization goes out. Then you have the personalization engines. Was it a bad idea put, <laughs> to put the personalization yeah. in an engine, but as a topic, it's really good. And then you have the multi-channel marketing hub as a technology category that actually seems to be um, progressing really well. How, how do you how do you see that uh, that movement or that confusion? What what does that mean? What should we take away from that? Well, look, I, I think one of the biggest, and this is not to diss Gartner, so Gartner, please don't sue me. Uh, but I've just identified something that I think is uh, just quite interesting. Okay, so personalization first came into the Gartner hype cycle. I think it was 2018, maybe 2016. The a year later, it was gone, and it had a <laughs> two to five year lifespan. Okay, it was it immediately got shoved into the trough of disillusionment uh, just before the plateau of productivity and it was just gone, it disappeared, only to be replaced by the very same things that run it, personalization <laughs> engines, okay? Yeah. That came in at the, uh, the slope of enlightenment uh, and that was, again, a two to five year lifespan. A year later, it was gone. In 2019, it was replaced by this thing, the personification. Yeah. Now, that had a five to yeah. ten year lifespan. And you're probably asking, well, what is personification? Well, it was created by a guy called Andrew Frank at Gartner. And essentially, it's just a spin on the term of personalization. It's, mm. it's I think, actually a very good spin, to be fair to, to Mr. Frank, because uh, it's all about using personal data, which insinuates that personalization should be I don't know, the right term for the use of personal mm. data. Yeah, that had a five to 10 year lifespan. Uh, and it stayed around on the Gartner high cycle for a number of years, much longer than personalization. Uh, and I just find that interesting that Gartner, the ones that created it, it stayed on their hype cycle for a much longer period of time, through something that they technically speaking invented or coined. Uh, I just find that very curious. So for me, I, I feel as though, um, brands, not specific to Ghana, but they tend to reinvent what the term personalization is or almost, almost to keep mm. it on this ventilator uh, every yep. single year. Um, and it feels as though it's been molded into this Frankenstein monster of something that it should never have been. Uh, and we seem to have lost what I would call the person in personalization. But going back to the hype, where do you think the hype comes from? Who's creating the hype about personalization? Uh, vendors. Vendors, tech vendors mainly? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you've got to think about it. Tech vendors have a purpose. Their purpose is to sell their tech. How do they sell their tech? They have to create case studies and evidence behind why their tech works. If they're a personalization provider, they have to immediately associate a revenue uplift in order to do these things. And I think I, I cited it in my book. I took a look at uh, a few different hundred case studies of personalization and saw an ROI uplift of anywhere between, I think like 9% was the least, and 1,200% was the most. <laughs> it's just unrealistic and unbelievable. And clearly yeah. some vendors don't understand the concepts of statistical significance. Uh, that being said, yeah, it's absolutely, it's vendors, those specifically who get a level of investment, uh, of which rather biasly, I am one of those uh, that sell this tech uh, and associate a revenue figure to it and mm. in doing so, almost create unrealistic expectations without understanding the effort that was required yeah. to see those gains. So rather cynically, I would say vendors is pretty high up on my list of, of those naughty people 
that and yeah. well within their rights to do that right Rasmus you know they, they have marketing it's pretty good marketing yeah I um, think we're perhaps we're we're no exception to at least having been a little played a little part in in in, in creating or at least sustaining uh, the hype on this absolutely. and uh, agencies are the same by the way yeah. essentially anybody that sells something immediately associates that it's designed for a revenue base um yeah. incentive and for me, that's not the purpose of personalization, but that's why the hype has stayed alive. It'll get you money, it'll get you money, it'll get you money, it'll get you money. And yeah. it's seen as the shiny new object syndrome every single year. Yeah. So I think, uh, so So as part of the research for, for Hello First Name, uh, my co-author, uh, Franz Riemersma from uh, the Mar Mar Marketing Tribe, uh, Martech Tribe, sorry, he uh, he has some data actually from, uh, so he, he had a, a robot crawl, I think, 10,000 vendor websites uh, and then based on um, uh, marketing buzzwords from Wikipedia he scanned those websites to see mm. which of the uh, buzzwords appeared most and guess what personalization was top of the list so by far the most uh, most hyped or most used hype buzzword uh, among all these different types of vendors because that's the fun part of it you would, you'd have the personalization engines you'd have the uh, so-called multi-channel marketing hubs or marketing automation platforms you'll be having yeah. The, yeah. the customer data platforms and all these different types of platforms will all be throwing the name in vain even i mean everybody will be claiming to have some kind of connection with personalization or enabling or fueling or enhancing personalization to to one extent or the other well, so, here's a question. Uh, can, can you think, I can, but can you think of another technology uh, where people uh, tack on to a trend uh, in order to do that thing? I, the, the tech stack is now becoming very much like everything's personalized. It feels very much like AI for me. Uh, every, oh, yeah. single, every single tech vendor has some kind of everything, AI capability. AI. And what you will probably find is that every year is the year of AI from here on in. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, I, so thinking back, so when I published my first book, that was in 2015, then big mm. data was the term that was on everybody's list. Yeah. Uh, lips. And uh, then later came came AI as sort of a predictive analytics um, version of the, the AI. And suddenly now we have the generative AI. And just everything that used to be AI and has been working within AI for, for many years is now suddenly super hyped again even though it's, mm. it's the same stuff and it's been evolving fairly uh, i wouldn't say statically but at a at, at a fair pace but still I, I cannot i cannot say that we're not on the verge of something big with AI. i'm simply not that much into it but let's get back to, to talking about personalization sure. in ai sure. yeah, because that's definitely also a thing i think that's uh, worth discussing um so uh so so is it real i mean we discussed and also when i was uh doing the forward for for your book, uh, which I'm very, very thankful that I, I got to write. Um, I mean, with, with the skepticism and the, the sarcasm that you clearly demonstrate when you're writing, uh, it could almost lead one to believe that you don't believe in the uh, in the term personalization or in the in the concept and that it, it won't ever make these money that the tech vendors um, promise. So, 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 David, do you in fact believe that you can make money as a company uh, by working with personalization? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, question. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's too much evidence to suggest that there's an ROI within personalization to suggest otherwise. Uh, I think my message is more about the balance of that. Mm -hmm. Personalization is designed, in my mind, 
as a communication principle to create relationships between brand and customer, to be more personable in how you are communicating with that individual. Uh, mm. That does not necessarily mean one-to-one. It does not necessarily mean segmentation. Uh, it means it's designed to be a communication principle that infers familiarity and acknowledgement and trust and loyalty and a relationship. Mm. However, I feel as though the current narrative is so imbalanced towards uh, a ROI, a revenue uplift on personalization, mm-hmm. uh, that people almost lose what it's originally designed for. And one of my best stats uh, that I cite in my book is McKinsey suggests that you get a 10% uplift in ROI from personalization. Fabulous. In revenue, for mm-hmm. re- uh, reference. Revenue, so 10% yeah. uplift in revenue in yeah. ROI from personalization. They also state in the very same breath that you get a 30% increase in customer satisfaction when doing personalization. Mm. Now, those two things have a disparity between them that suggests you get a greater uplift from customer satisfaction than you do from revenue. And therefore, just in, by virtue, you should be focusing on this as your purpose for per- personalization, not yeah. this. Um, I think, well, I, I, I think I can, can agree to that because uh, one thing that I'll be, be discussing with um, uh, with another expert later on uh, in this podcast is the is the concept of value and value creation. And I think definitely with, within personalization, there's a, a distinction between short-term value creation and long-term value creation. Yeah. And I believe that if you are constantly focusing on optimizing the conversion rate or the short-term metrics, uh, as I regard conversion rate to be, then you'd be losing out on some of the long-term effects that personalization can definitely bring you by being more personable, by actually uh, serving content and features and functionality and whatever that the the customer would find useful will increase their customer satisfaction and will thus increase their long-term customer loyalty and the customer lifetime value. So I believe that customer satisfaction is probably a, what you could call a proxy metric for what will be the, uh, the, uh, the actual value creation that could, you could be getting. What I yeah, believe, I mean, though, that, that maybe people are, or these tech vendors, are, what, what, what I do believe they're guilty in uh, is the uh, downplaying the amount of work that goes into actually making the personalization come alive. So they're, in order to, to get the, uh, the license cost or the, the whole project cost, total cost of ownership seem lower, they downplay the actual effort it takes in terms of man hours and consulting and integration and such and claiming that that's super easy. And thus people, and that's what will, will be keeping a lot of companies from actually getting the benefits because they have been convinced that they don't have to invest as much into to people and processes. Yeah, everything's a one, a one, a single script that's a five minute installation, isn't it? <laughs> Uh, yeah. Everything has like overinflated expectations. Even yes. cars nowadays, for goodness sake, cars sell you the dream that you know you're going to be driving down a long, windy road in the sun, listening to I don't know Barry White on your Bose uh, stereo system. But the reality is that you're hunched up in the rain, driving to work with the kids, kids kicking your back seat, and that new car smell has gone immediately. Um, <laughs> those expectations just go like that. So I, I think absolutely, it's overselling, it's setting expectations. I mean, in my book, I talk about the number one barrier that prevents people from personalizing properly, and that mm. is efforts. It's not data, it's not technology, it's people to some extent, but it's people's yeah. concept of effort. And I do think that's why AI will be successful in some form. Yeah, we'll get back to that. Let's uh, dwell a bit with the, uh, 
with the consumer expectations. Uh, so, so one of the claims, I think this comes from a McKinsey uh, report, as I recall, is that uh, uh, customers, consumers demand personalization and brands had better deliver. Uh, and that makes me, <laughs> I thought about this when I read the intro to your book. I reread it uh, just this morning, in fact. And uh, you were uh, reflecting on your experience uh, within Disney World. So being there and, I mean, with a company that is uh, so uh, really emotional, connected uh, to you, you're, I know you're, you're famous for really uh, enjoying Disney World and Disney, the whole universe of it. And then suddenly finding yourself in Disney World feeling totally not personalized to just one of the masses, uh, one in the masses and uh, having this experience that actually was pretty far from from uh, from individualization and is it yeah. is it true do consumers expect personalization i mean clearly there was something in your disney world experience that didn't live up, live up to expectations but do consumers expect it or don't they and to which extent yeah there's far too much choice um in order not to expect personalization like i said there's that seven to fourteen thousand ads a day uh, uh citation uh, that we're exposed to and we need to curate okay but we also just need to choose uh, rela a relationship or a level of intimacy or some kind of loyalty towards a brand. So the more personable we feel or the more mm. intimate we feel with that brand and the more they make us feel like a human rather than like a number, which is what my experience with Disney's been, uh, the more likely we are to retain with them, to be loyal to them. So that is the reason why brands should, in theory, be personalizing towards us. Our expectations as consumers, as you know, has just grown and grown and grown and grown and grown over the years. Choice mm. proliferation has absolutely added to that. Um, so I, I think um, my experience with Disney, just, just very quickly, is that I felt I've, I've been, I think, 35 times now, 30, I'm going again in October. I'm a glutton wow. of punishment. Uh, <laughs> I'm very, very fortunate. Um, but I feel more like a number than, than a name. Um, and it came yeah, to a head. About, I, well, I'm just, like I say, I'm a sucker. Um, yeah. Uh, it, felt, it came to a head in 2019 where they announced their personalized app that basically said, okay, here is Disney. We have over 100 different rides, over 140 different race, restaurants. You tell us what your preferences are and we will make recommendations mm. as to what you should be doing. If you like, like Thrill Rides and uh, Princess and the Frog, we're going to recommend Big Thunder Mountain and you see Princess Tiana, I don't know, at the Hall of Presidents or something. Mm. What, that was what was promised. What was released was actually an app that charged more, not for that service, because that service doesn't even exist, but for you to <laughs> ride specific rides. So it wow. became not a, an app for, for personalization for the customer, but an app yeah. that was de designed to nickel and dime the guest, to charge you more, to skip queues, to experience different rides, etc., etc. Mm. And it was search upsell app, basically. Exactly, and it felt yeah. like you are... Um, prioritizing the needs yeah. of the brand and the business yeah. above the needs of the guest. Yeah. Um, and I think there really has to be a balance there because I mean, why wouldn't or why would companies make any effort to personalize anything if it weren't for making more money down the road? Why why should they why should they care? I mean, not maybe not to get the money right here now, but at least to get it later. How do you see the balance between short and long term uh, value creation? Was fascinating. How do you create more money? You either get more money down the funnel or you charge more for your service. And in Disney's, um, in Disney's aspect, 
you've got to think they're an experiential thing, i.e. they're a theme park that has a limited capacity of 100,000 guests a day, in the Magic Kingdom anyways. Uh, so you either get more through the door, but when they're currently uh, the highest demand they've ever been to, thanks to COVID, you know, what was once gone, people need to and mm. feel get that magic back again, so they yeah. go back like me, then they charge <laughs> more. So, you know, guest spending is increasing the Disney parks by 40% year on year. That means if wow. you were spending $100 last year, you were now spending $140 this year for exactly the same service. Wow. Um, so I've, I've kind of forgotten your question, but... I think the notion of immediate, sorry, yes, the notion of immediacy, which is why conversion rate is a result that's often prioritized, mm. it trumps the more intangible, uh, insensible parts of customer satisfaction that are more long term. Quite often, yeah, I uh, agree. And the, one of the reasons why is because everyone has an investor. Disney has investors. Mm. You know, they've got BlackRock as one of their biggest investors who demand a return on their investment, and that needs to be within a three, five, seven-year period. And that yeah. has been exaggerated over yeah. COVID. So immediacy always trumps long-term. But can't you, can't, you be, can't you get into a situation where you are jeopardizing the long-term value by pushing for the conversion here and now too much? I mean, I believe that is almost what yeah. you felt looking in the app and just not feeling as if you were buying into something, but really feel like you were being sold to. Well, 100%. I, I, the, the person who created that app was a chap called Bob Chapek. Uh, amongst the Disney community, we, we called him Bob Chipek. He was the ex-CFO of Disney that got promoted to the CEO once Bob Iger left. He mm. lasted two years because he, he focused so much on immediacy, on immediate yeah. revenue gain. Why? A, because of ego, because he needed to make a stamp and he needed to prove some kind of value in the stock. Mm. Uh, and did that work out well for him, I hear you ask? No. He left within two years and Bob Iger retired, had to come back. So mm. I think there is, there is always a consequence, but the person running that consequence, in that case, the CEO, I don't know whether they care too much. I think they are uh, beholden to their investors who demand that level of immediacy. So it's not yeah. as prioritized as, as retention or, or loyalty. Yeah. Maybe I just have a huge chip on my shoulder. I, I think as a consumer, sure. we all, f we have this, uh, I mean, everybody knows the, the feeling of being sold to the uh, like getting stalked by something that you perhaps even already bought and mm. popping up everywhere. And uh, that, that's at least one of the, the examples that I hear people mention now and then and again and again, actually, that something they already bought maybe somewhere else is continues to pop up and really spamming them or spamming their uh, the field of vision when they're visiting uh, websites and such. I think that's one of the, the things that I hear people are most uh, annoyed with, uh, feeling sold to as opposed to feeling genuine help. So so we're working with a, a health and beauty retailer here in Denmark uh, called Matas. Actually, just uh, they're extremely successful with personalization and with the omnichannel marketing. Recently purchased or acquired their Swedish uh, competitor, uh, mm. which actually so is kind of little David uh, buying Goliath because actually they, they have more stores in in Sweden, but they're doing better. One of the things that they do really well, I think, is, and they, I mean, they're not afraid to push the campaign button and make sure that they keep uh, customers inspired. But what they actually do really well is that as soon as you buy into a new category, say makeup or whatever, they will pause the 
continuous selling and a campaign track for you and instead tell you about how you make the most some dwelling with the purchase in the new category telling you and advising you on how to uh, apply and how to get the most out of your purchase and actually it turns out that this this converts really really well because people find this to be genuinely helpful and actually for some odd reason in terms of short-term conversions it actually also works better so uh, as opposed to, and especially if, if you compare it to just keep on hammering uh, people with with a, with the campaigns. So I think that's a, yeah, that's a pretty good example of where I mean, just is personalization out there to create money, or is it out to create a good customer experience? And in the end, wouldn't a good customer experience ultimately lead to the more money? Maybe not just here and now, but you you won't sort of deplete your resources or uh, yeah. So that that's that's my idea about it at least. So. I think some of some of the hype. Going back to the hype a bit here, yeah. Um, wouldn't you say that the uh, the stuff that Amazon has been sharing, the this around personalization, the stuff that Netflix has been sharing about personalization, hasn't that been an important part of creating the hype as well? I think they're the they're the two examples where they have shaped what personalization actually means. Uh, in the notion of recommendations. So, I mean, Amazon created recommendations for goodness sake. They've got a paper from 23 years ago yeah. that won what's called the Test of Time Award uh, because no other technology has had a greater influence in the world of uh, digital marketing than the concept of recommendations, which is something that Amazon created mm. regardless. The fact that they're seen as being so su commercially successful, the fact that they're so overt within how they label uh, that they're doing personalization. The fact that it's so transparent that this, this form of personalization uh, is, is there in front of your face, it's visible, it is even labeled with, we recommend for goodness sake, yeah. um, that it's easily copied. Um, so people see that as being a visible thing, tangible. They see it as being uh, easy to replicate because a lot of other companies offer recommendations. They see it as being uh, a definition of being commercially successful. Mm -hmm. And they take those three things. Uh, and because they defined it as personalization, so too do we or other retailers define recommendations as personalization. It's not their well, it's not that their it's not that it's their fault, but they've led us blindly down a cul-de-sac mm -hmm. uh, yeah. of what their definition of personalization is. Well, it's a too is. myopic definition of the term personalization. So they almost monopolize the perception of personalization is something that is like one-to-one -one, uh, equal to uh, product recommendations. Yeah, so I mean... You've got the product recommendations sorted, personalization, done. Yeah, I mean, finding a product is what, one quarter, one fifth of the overall concept of how a user would actually buy something. Yeah. So are we just saying that personalization is the equivalent of that one quarter? Yeah. Not uh, in my book. <laughs> well, exactly, not in my book either. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure it creates a lot of... Uh, uh, like this feeling of uh, being personable. Uh, I, I, at least that's my, my perception of, of Amazon is that yes, it may be like mechanistically correct and okay uh, uh, recommendations that I get. It's definitely better than not being logged in and just getting the, the general Amazon store. Definitely yeah, better yeah. than that. But apart from that, I don't feel, uh, I don't feel recognized as a person and I don't feel uh, acknowledged and spoken to and 
the personality feeling, the warmth is, is totally gone. Uh, well, I mean, here's, here's you know, an interesting concept that we can explore if you'd like. I certainly do in my book. I wonder if you felt that five years ago or 10 years ago. I think that your consumer expectations has grown over the years. Okay. Now, because everybody does recommendations, you no longer feel that way and you need more, you need more, you need more. So, yeah, I think that originally you would have felt spoken to as an individual, but your Maybe. expectations yeah, have since I think that's improved. a very, very interesting uh, hypothesis. So, uh, so gradually, I think this, is, this may be sort of a, a raise of arms here that you have the, the consumers expecting more. I, I even hear stories of people, uh, ex, I mean, have, there's this distinction between um, experienced personalization and actual personalization because you, you can't get the feeling. So, so the ones will be watching an ad, uh, which is completely randomly put in front of them, but it just happens to be promoting something that is top of their to-do list that they want to buy can experience this, this as something that is extremely personalized. And maybe that's because I was talking about it and uh, Facebook was listening in on my web, whatever, on my calls. And so that's, that must be why uh, I'm getting this uh, particular offer right here and then, where it can actually be that it's just completely uh, fluke or random coincidence. So yeah. people are also seeing, to my, to my experience at least, they're seeing personalization in places where it actually isn't. But because of the perceived relevance, they are thinking this must be personalization. And then sometimes they are indeed met with uh, personalized communication and they are they're feeling the warmth of this. And that will in turn increase their expectations as to, you know, whenever they want to like change channels or revisit a store that they expect the, the, the favorite brand to know everything about them. Everything they ever said, purchased or, uh, or downloaded or clicked yeah. on or whatever is to be taken into account. And they, they get a bit uh, upset if it isn't. Is, is that where we're going? The people are almost like, oh, wow, you, I have to say this again. But, you know, I bought this uh, last last uh, last week and now you are recommending me this and this is totally, totally wrong. I think so, buddy. Yeah, there's a really good synopsis. You you should write a book. Um, yeah, I may may write one more. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I I think so. I, I think um, consumer expectations are increasing. Businesses need to question uh, not necessarily do we need personalization, but what is the purpose of it for our business? Yeah, uh, I th I think that's all it comes down to is purpose. Why are you doing what it is that you're doing? Yeah. Don't go down that cul-de-sac blindly like the Amazons and Netflix. Or, you know, they've been very successful. Don't let them lead you down into what your purpose should be for your consumers. Yeah. Ask yourself, why are you doing what, what it is that you're doing? And if you need to associate that to some kind of KPI, really mm. investigate what that KPI should be. Yeah. Uh, because if you blindly do it for revenue, for solely revenue orientation, you're going, to be, you're going to create personalization that is designed for you as a brand not necessarily for them, for, for the customer who it is that you're serving. I think it's quite a short-termist way of thinking. Yeah, and as we will explore later in a, in a later episode, actually, once you get to a very mature level of personalization, that's where the short-termism uh, loses ground in favor of more uh, next best experience, more long-term customer satisfaction, uh, emotional uh, loyalty and such. But that's for, that's for another uh, episode. So... Um, we're talking about the the technology uh, and the technology vendors uh, being partly responsible for for creating the hype. Uh, do you believe though that technology actually has become more mature over say the last five years? Yeah, hundred percent. I, I mean, AI has seen that alone. 
Uh, I think it's it's just where that's leading us to. You know, if you wanted to discuss AI, I think that yeah, yeah um, that's my next topic. So we can we can dive into that. Well, there, there are almost two different forms of AI. Uh, there's uh, specifically when we talk about personalization, but there's curia curation and creation. I yeah. think large language models has led us towards a creation mentality. You know, generative AI, for example. Um, whereas previous to that. It's been all about curation, which is why we have recommendations here, there, and everywhere. You yeah. know, we associated a uh, heaps of effort preventing personalization from being successful. Curation AI was the answer to a lot of that, mm. and therefore we started to create recommendations, a form of personalization that required very little effort uh, using mm. AI. But the content was already there. Yeah, 100%. It's been there for a long time. But AI has only become to the forefront of most people's minds thanks to you know its accessibility in ChatGPT mm. and its advances with large language models that it's using creation AI, i.e. what most people call generative AI. Um, and this is a form of AI that can create a level of intimacy based on the individual's preferences, tone of voice, yada, yada. We can go down this road if we need to. Uh, in in the in you know in in an instance i think that's where personalization will be successful mm. personalization will be at the behest of ai ai will reduce the effort that's required of impersonalization yeah. i just question whether ai can ever create intimacy to the extent that it feels genuine and human and create that relationship that's required yeah. between brand and customer i do yeah. not know the answer to that no I think the future holds the answer for us uh, on that one. But definitely, I agree with you. What I'm thinking, so just very briefly, my take on the generative AI part is that we've been having AI working for us for many years uh, within personalization, building uh, or, or crafting or generating insights at a customer level. So based on transaction history or whatever, which product would I most likely find most useful? But also sort of uh, propensity scoring for which customers would be most likely interested and to which extent in this category or that category a churn propensity scoring who's most likely going to leave us and for which reason and and these insights uh, which happen to be related to to, to to the one side of the bow tie of personalization which is the main model in hello first name these insights would then feed into the messaging that you'd put in front of people and into the, the the content feed, the recommendations, the product recommendations, the the show recommendations, the song recommendations, or the playlist recommendations in, in the in the case of Spotify. Yeah, and and you can say with with that part of the content, uh, the content feeds, the content is already there. It's not content that the marketer needs to to create. Uh, merely, it's a it's a matter of curation, as you say. So, how do we sort it? How do we group it? How do we mark up different kinds of content within the content feeds based on their uh, properties or whether they've been bought before or listened before, whether they're on sale or whatever. And the last part of the of the bow tie would then be the, the creative messages, which is really what has been and, and all still is, I think, where a lot of the uh, the effort needs to come in because you need the, the creative writers, you need the people who are doing the images. This is where you put together your, your fancy TikTok dance uh, that you put on, uh, on TikTok and what on all this creativity and all this work that has to be put into this I feel that now we have a new friend that can help us finally scale that last past part of the bow tie and the mm. last, last part of personalization. But still, I've, I, mean, I've, I've, I was trying it out actually for the sake of uh, yeah, also getting a first-hand experience with it. And I found that ChatGPT was 
perfectly good for for generating drafts and for like seven. I actually used generative AI to to help make the article that I wrote about generative AI, and it got me to like 70, 75, 80% of the way fairly quickly. But I still had to spend quite some work to make it something that was from me and that was uh, uh, personable uh, or personal, uh, as you probably call it. And I think that works with text, mm. but for, for images or for video, it's really hard, at least for me or for the general marketer, to use an image that is 80% okay. So you know, I, I, I asked Midjourney to draw me an image of um, a, a young man, young, fit, Nordic-looking man working out at the gym, uh, a bit like you, could have been you, and he was uh, doing bench press, and uh, the image that I got had three hands. And yeah. so, so that's, I mean, so, so an image that is 80% off is completely useless, whereas a text that is 80% off, I can work with that. And probably some graphical artist could remove the third hand and it would be sort of okay. So it will get me to having a draft, writer's blog is gone. I mean, that's, that's the benefit of a large language model is that it learns, you know, on a daily, hourly, weekly, monthly basis. And yeah, basis. and I think these it's will be weeded out. In two years, you know, give it a year, six months, two years. How long did it take the, um, the chess AI to defeat that, that grandmaster? Uh, I think it was three, three attempts, wasn't it? Over a thousand games. Yeah. Um, and now that they've had 978 uh, attempts at beating the chess AI, no one can beat it. Uh, so the more that it learns, the better it will get. So that third hand will go. Yeah, I think so too. But at, at the moment and where we are, you'll be using the generative AI to, to help you get better to having a draft or having something that's almost okay. And then you can tweak it. You still want to be supervising whatever it is that you'll be putting in front of customers because I mean, it could be super inappropriate if you, if I'm suddenly the three hands or maybe not inappropriate, but just, just weird, uh, really. Maybe people from so, the Nordics have three hands. Uh, I think maybe, maybe you should cut that out of your podcast. I don't know. Yeah, I think you definitely come and visit us, uh, and I'm sure you'll yeah, we can do the count together, David. I think uh, I think actually this uh, this concludes uh, this concludes the today's uh, podcast. So uh, I think to to sort of end off with here, where can people reach you, and where can they find out more about you and and what you're working with? How can how can people get closer to this fantastic understanding of personalization that you also uh, showing here? Uh, so my, my book, here we go. It's real. Uh, it's available on the 29th of August. You can buy it from Amazon. Just type in the person in personalization. Uh, I am also uh, the founder of a new business called Made with Intent, uh, which helps people understand the intent of their audience uh, to enable us as retailers to be more appropriate mm. to their messages, their needs. Uh, I think it's a fantastic proposition. I am, of course, biased, but some of the learnings from the book are enabled me to create this concept uh which is which is known as intent so a website personalization tool that is actually not about product recommendations absolutely well absolutely it's 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 less so about finding stuff and more so about being appropriate mm -hmm. uh doing more with less as it were uh, we classify it more of an analytics tool than a personalization platform Interesting. Uh, but yeah so made with intent.ai and just follow me on linkedin uh, i'm usually ranting about some kind of disney or manchester united uh, <laughs> issue so uh, yeah. yeah, I'll be there. All right. We'll make sure to put all the, the relevant um, links in the show notes. And uh, thank you so much again for, for, for joining us, David. Um, I'm sure we'll keep in touch. Thank you. Thank you for listening in on this episode of Hello First Name. Remember that all models and even a written abstract of the book are available for download. You'll find the link in the show notes. 
In our next episode, we'll cover chapter 2, which is all about the problem of personalization, and basically why we need to discuss this topic at all.